quickly turning to Acts chapter 9. Silas said, I had him change the uh, scripture he was going to read several times. I had a different sermon. We were going to leave Acts, and then I felt like, no, we need to do Acts. So hopefully you get a sermon this morning (laughs) of some sort. You know, I, I would say that I share the faith of Saul, but I want to have the faith of Saul. Let me say that again. I say I share the faith of Saul, but I want to have the faith of Saul. We'll find in a couple of verses today that really a span of three or more years takes place from the very words of Saul. If we take the very words of Saul from elsewhere in Scripture and compare it to here in Acts, I want you to see or I want you to note that Saul seems to have a fire that just doesn't run out when he was converted. He has a faith that doesn't run dry. And he has a conviction that seems to have very real implications in his day-to-day life. So I invite you to stand if you're able. You haven't had to stand for any hymns. So we're going to read lots of script. No, just we're just going to read the scriptures I have planned to preach on. And let's read this together and standing in honor of the Lord's word. We pick up in the middle of verse 19. If you're reading along in a Bible, it says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, he being Saul, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But the disciples took him by night and led him through uh, an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Excuse me, his disciples. Verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they first they brought him down to Caesarea and then sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. Let's pray. Father, uh, we come before your word, which is always weighty. We believe your Holy Spirit inspired the writing of these very words. We believe your Holy Spirit is present and able to teach us today. We believe this Holy Spirit resides in us. And if we put all those beliefs together, we also believe that you can do a great marvelous work through the proclamation of your word. 
Help this not to be an ordinary hour. Help us to be open to the possibility that you want to do a great work in our hearts. And help us to be willing and obedient. And Father, may because of what we hear today, would it inspire us to great faithfulness towards you. So have your way among us and say what it is you wish to say. We ask this all in Jesus, our Lord and Savior's name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things we've learned with coronavirus is that statistics are always trustworthy, right? (laughs) But statistics do suggest that the rate of sharing and witnessing among new believers is high, and it dwindles after that, sometimes rather quickly, to where folks a year or so later, five years, and then some until finally to be a Christian for many folks just means going to church. Let's not witness to anybody. uh, You know, I I don't see that in the Scriptures. (laughs) I see folks willing and often succumbing to martyrdom for their faith. I know times were different back then, and often to witness about Christ or try to persuade others to come to Christ was just downright illegal. Saul is faithful in the beginning of his Christian life. Indeed, we we hop into the middle of verse 19. In fact, immediately after his conversion experience, and we see Luke summarize his first days as a Christian, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. So the disciples here, not referring to the twelve, but the disciples, uh, the followers of Jesus, Ananias, likely among them. Verse 20, And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? So we read in verse 9 that Saul was blind for three days. And before Ananias laid hands on him and he was healed. Upon the faithfulness of Ananias to lay hands on him, on what was a persecutor, I'm then assuming that Saul joins the, the disciples of Damascus and sure he's instructed a little bit in the Lord. And then I'm also assuming, hearing the the sermon of Stephen recorded in Acts chapter 8, undoubtedly also Saul is probably familiar with Peter's preaching. Saul has had a a lot of, uh, has heard a lot while he was disagreeing with all of it. But I'm assuming right now he's probably rethinking some of those sermons in a different light. And so the fact of the matter is, is Saul saw the Lord resurrected. Saul saw Jesus, and he had firsthand eyewitness experience to go off of when he started coming to the synagogues and was preaching a different tune than what he was going to preach. We know Saul's original plans before he converted uh, was still among the, the believers in the general population of Damascus. They knew about it. His mission of persecution was apparently public, as public as you or I might know if an army is coming to town. Um, you know, if you recall, Ananias had to fight with the Lord for a little bit about going to Saul and to lay hands on him in the correct way and restore his sight. Um, so it's likely public information. Yet here is Saul not doing what he was originally intending. 
Instead, immediately, as if to say, Saul is still a babe. His first uh, public appearance in Damascus uh, were not ones announcing his original plans to take place, but rather he proclaims Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. Saul is preaching at synagogues because as a Pharisee and as a rabbi, he would be invited to preach. He's one of the students of a renowned man named Gamaliel. And ironically, Gamaliel appears earlier in the book of Acts trying to convince the Jewish high priest to just actually take it a little bit lighter on the disciples. Now this makes me wonder that if Gamaliel were were present among some of the things that Peter and the disciples were saying, likely it could be that Saul was too, if he is a student of Gamaliel. But apparently Saul did not hear his own rabbi on Gamaliel's advice. Uh, In any case, as a student of Gamaliel, a rabbi in his own right, and a notoriously famous one at that, no doubt the Jewish synagogues are inviting him in, willing and ready to hear him. But instead of parroting Gamaliel or giving lengthy interpretations on the law, Saul starts talking with belief and conviction the very things perhaps many of his hearers expected to hear him violently reject. It's no wonder that in verse 21, 12, verse 21 tells us, and all who heard him were amazed. And the word amazed in the Greek here is used both good or negatively. And one of the most negative responses would be in Mark 3, 21. I wonder if you remember Jesus' mother and brothers are coming to take Jesus home. And it says in Mark 3, 21, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. And you're like, where is amazed in there? (laughs) The he is out of his mind is the same Greek word for amazed. Beside himself or beside them, they're out of their minds. They're amazed that Saul's preaching. Uh, they're beside themselves at what he is saying. Is this really happening? And they said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? That was what Saul was going to do. That was his plans. I want you to emotionally, if you can, picture yourself in Saul's life. <laughs> this is your life yelling at strangers that you don't like because of what they say. And you're like, I I do that. I'm just kidding. (laughs) You're the man responsible for wrecking families, disturbing homes. You're ultimately responsible for the deaths of many. Blood is on your hands. You are walking 135 miles to leave one city that you've likely instigated or played major parts in its hot bed of persecution, that is Jerusalem, And you're going to another city 135 miles away, Damascus, to round up people there like sheep to be led to slaughter. Saul's own words later in Acts, he says, And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. That was Saul's plans. That was Saul's life. Trying to to get people he didn't like in traps to have them persecuted, going to foreign cities. So it's apparently that he went elsewhere besides Damascus before he was converted. And then Saul's own words, he had, quote, raging fury, which is really three words here. The three words are exceedingly and then plus being furious. And I I had to laugh. I already used the word furious to describe a heated anger, right? 
I wasn't angry. I was furious. <laughs> but Saul was exceedingly furious. Raging fury. I wonder if you've ever lived there. You know, I've had a few seasons where I just wanted to walk around angry. Snobbish. Usually it's because things aren't going my way. Saul was living there. Religious fervor, zealousness meets outright brutish anger. That's his drive. That's who he is. Who is this man? That's what the hearers in the Damascus synagogues were saying. And it's likely that's why Saul had to stop. There was a block in Damascus. Saul was fired up and faithful at the beginning of his ministry, but others couldn't hear him and wouldn't hear him. And we we read this interesting phrase at the beginning of verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So track with me. Luke seems to be saying, he, hey, he went through the synagogues. They held his past against him. So he increased all the more in strength. Like, what does that mean? Did he do some pull-ups? Or... In fact, it is here where some scholars and commentators who I happen to agree with take into consideration what Silas read for us earlier, that after being in Damascus for a little amount of time, perhaps Galatians 1.17 takes place, where Saul says, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, Luke, in these verses, does put in some time slots that could also mean his trip to Arabia, I mean, for some days, or immediately, or after many days. But I like the theory here at the beginning of verse 22, and I also like what the HCSB says here in 922. It says, But Saul grew more capable. Because we're not talking about Saul's physical strength, but strength in his ability to argue or to show that Jesus is the Christ. It fits because it seems to me Luke is saying, Saul tried to argue with those Damascans, but they were just too floored that this was Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor talking with them. So Saul grew more capable. How so? Lots of things. If he went to Arabia... The sheer passage of time and the newness of Saul now being a Christian and not a persecutor in Damascus would wear off. What did Saul do in Arabia? We don't know. Now, do you want to speculate and make some doctrine out of it? We can start a denomination together. You want to do that? No. <laughs> um, me neither. But we can guess. And many do guess what Saul was doing in Arabia. Some say he preached. Others say that he studied the scriptures. Maybe he went to Mount Sinai to, to read the books of Moses and he felt the Lord speak to him about the fulfillment of those books. Maybe all of the above. Maybe he took a vacation and drank some coffee and read the scripture. I don't know. And he got the confidence to return to his active ministry. Whatever the case, I believe, I believe it was upon his return from Arabia that he grew more capable. And he increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus, that his arguing was now impeccable. In fact, the words tell us in verse 22 that he was, quote, proving that Jesus was the Christ. Proving means literally joining together. That, that is, Saul was joining together the idea or the embodiment that the long that Jesus is the long-anticipated Christ. In other words, he showed that the Bible is about Jesus. <laughs> in fact, 
If you want to go back a few chapters, maybe you could read Stephen's sermon for which Saul was present at while being a persecutor. And it could be that Saul used some of that. We continue on in verse 23. When many days had passed, now again, Galatians 1.18 would say, Saul was here in Damascus after his return from Arabia for three years. It's also a quick side note, an important note to understand the Jewish way of counting. Now, for example, I hear every year at Easter, Jesus wasn't dead for three days, and he wasn't dead for three days. He wasn't dead for 72 hours because he died Friday uh, midday and he arose again on Sunday morning. And an acceptable Jewish way to say that was that he was dead for three days. <laughs> Similarly, Saul saying he had been in Damascus for three years could mean anything from 14 months, supposing he was there December on the first year and January on the last year, or he could be there upwards of uh, the full three years. However long he was in Damascus, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. Hear this, but his disciples, so Saul is already gathering and making disciples here in Damascus. So for lack of uh, better terms, consider Saul a pastor at, I don't know, you know, St. Paul's Church in Damascus. But when Saul's being hunted down, his disciples, his parishioners, took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Paul fills in some details for us in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, at Damascus, the governor under King Eretus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Interesting to note, King Eretus was a king from the Arabia area. So some wonder if Saul's time in Arabia had incited him over there and maybe the king followed him back to Damascus. We don't know if Damascus was under Roman rule or if Arabia had rule over Damascus. We don't know. Whatever the case, Saul makes it out. So I want us to zoom out for a minute and take note of something. We we talked to begin with about the fire of new believers and how quickly it wears out. This isn't happening for Saul. Saul was, was uh, faithful at the beginning of his ministry, and then where he is three years plus however long his time in Arabia was, eh, his newness wore off, his honeymoon is over. No. We find that he's so fired up as a Christian that he's having to escape in the night to to avoid dying a martyr's death. Saul is faithful with training and experience. Whether he, he did some training in Arabia, I don't know. But like I just said, it seems like he had a church, a group of disciples here in Damascus. And he's just as bold and courageous and outspoken as he was in the first few days he started speaking in Damascus as a new believer. But now Saul is in for a real trial. Because as he was faithful in the beginning and faithful in training uh, training and experience, he's going to show himself faithful when suspect. First, I want you to put yourself again in Saul's shoes. Sometimes you and I have bad closets in our lives that maybe we genuinely, truly are working through. And maybe we come to a spot to think that we've gotten over them, we've made it past them. When we get comfortable with getting over ourselves and we feel we have peace with God. But how disheartening it may have been for Saul here. 
Listen to verse 26. It says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. See, upwards of three years plus however long in Arabia has passed, yet I'm sure the image of a dead Stephen and Saul holding the coats was the last image in their minds. And I'm sure that news of a fire-breathing Saul marching in fury to Damascus was the last news on their minds. So the last thing that they would ever expect was a true story of this man coming to Christ. Now again, Galatians chapter 1 comes into play and fills in some more information for us. Again, Saul writes there, he says, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, also Peter, and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, uh, the Lord's brother. We saw in Acts chapter 8 that the disciples are scattered after Stephen's death. This kind of initiates a big persecution. Near the end of Acts chapter 8, we, we find that a guy named Philip, one of the twelve, is winds up in Caesarea. And as late as Acts chapter 21, he's still there. So I'm assuming that even though this is roughly three or so years later, that perhaps the disciples in Jerusalem aren't necessarily the twelve apostles. We know from Saul and Galatians again that among them are Peter and James, but not all the twelve. And I'm assuming that Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, may not be the only of the twelve in Jerusalem. They're definitely not the only disciples there. You get the idea of the difference between the twelve apostles and more disciples, followers of Jesus. You know, at the beginning of Acts, we saw 120 disciples gathered in the upper room. So there are just many nameless disciples that are not accepting Saul upon his return to Jerusalem. Probably because the persecution that they're under was in large part started by him. Saul's staying with Peter for 15 days did not come until a man named Barnabas stepped in. We read in verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Well, this is the second time we read about Barnabas in Acts. And it's really hard to not like this guy. You can try, I guess. But in Acts chapter 4, Barnabas sets an example of giving generously to the church by selling a field he owned and, and giving the money to the church. Now his generosity extends to apparently um, love and acceptance. And like Ananias before him in Damascus, knowing full well who Saul was, he receives him. He hears Saul's story and he tells it to the disciples. And perhaps from there, Saul enters into one-on-one conversations with Peter and with James, as he said he did in Galatians. But here we see that Saul is also faithful when suspect. It could have been easy for the first denominations to start drastically, right? <laughs> we have, uh, we see from the remainder of the New Testament that Saul is a force to be reckoned with, even as a Christian. In fact, in a few chapters later, it's like Luke says, let's forget about Peter. I'm just going to tell you about Paul the rest of my book here. Um, we know that Saul is called. We know that, that, that God does use him. And we're going to see Saul making more submissions in, in the book of Acts to James. Saul could have easily said, you guys just catch up, <laughs> all right? I'm going to go my way planting churches. I don't have time for you to say, you're not a Christian. <laughs> Saul 
sees the importance in unity. And his in with Barnabas must have been a sigh of relief for him as it is to lead to his in with the disciples. Saul was faithful when suspect. And he's faithful under risk. It's not too long in Jerusalem until the persecution that he may have been instrumental in starting years prior comes full circle to him. We read in verse 28, So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. There is an irony we we miss here. And I can't believe you missed it because we talked about it last October. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) we talked about Stephen, in which we read in Acts chapter 6, verse 9, Stephen began giving his lengthy, the Bible is about Jesus sermon, (laughs) in a Hellenistic synagogue. That is Greek Jews, or Jews who were Jewish in ethnicity, but Greek in their upbringing and culture, and maybe even being born in Greek lands. And this is the same uh, sermon that led to his martyrdom in which Saul held the coats of those stoning Stephen. And it's really come full circle in that Saul is back among the same crowds where Stephen was stoned among his own people. Saul is a Hellenist, having been born in Tarsus and saying over and over, I'm a Roman citizen. And so the only change is instead of wanting Saul to hold their coats, now they want to kill Saul. (laughs) Kind of a different change there. And the disciples' acceptance of Saul proves true. That A, Saul is now risking his life. So he must be truly converted. And B, they believe it so much that they're now willing to save him. They um, bring him uh, down to Caesarea where Philip is. And then they send him to his own hometown. Saul would tell us there in Tarsus, he would also continue to preach among those regions in Galatians. Galatians 1 says, Afterward, I went into the regions of uh, Syria and Sicilia where Tarsus is and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it and said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they glorified God because of me. See, Saul is faithful under risk. He remains faithful to preach what's changed his life. Reading his letters we know that his reputation would always be questioned. It would be with him the rest of his life. I don't know if you read First and Second Corinthians. He's always having to defend his credentials, his calling. And in fact, today, some of you know believers who will say, well, who is Paul? <laughs> he doesn't sound like Jesus or the apostles to me, even though Saul and Peter didn't let Saul's past split up the church. So-called followers will split the church between Saul and the earlier apostles today. Nevertheless, Saul was faithful. He was faithful at the beginning. He was faithful with training and experience in Arabia and fleeing for his life in Damascus. He was faithful when suspect and if it wasn't apparent if the disciples in Jerusalem would accept him. And he's faithful under risk when he's having to run for his life again to proclaim Christ even where he's running to. Friends, we have an account near Saul's end in the book of 2 Timothy. His end is not a good end. It's a martyrdom, just like all the other apostles. It seems his death even signifies uniformity with the twelve. Saul would write to his own apprentice in 2 Timothy, he says, For I am already being poured out 
as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I have kept the faith, says Saul. I dare say. See, I, I share the faith of Saul, but I want to have the faith of Saul. I didn't have a dramatic conversion like Saul. I was raised in the church from the womb. I made a profession of faith sometime as a kid. I actually remember my mom happily sharing it at testimony time at Valley View Nazarene about my having to pray with her about having Jesus come to my heart. Then I actually remember having that conversation more. I made some deeper commitments around age 10 or 11 at a family church camp. I fall, I felt called into ministry my junior year in high school, and since that I've had ebbs and flows. I don't see that in Saul. Rather, I see something that comes from Saul that is drawn from his proclamation, if you notice in this passage. In verses 20 and 22, and in verses 27 and 28, that what stimulates Saul's faith is the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ. Saul boldly preached the name of Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. Sometimes that phrase, whether it be for long veteran Christians or whether it be for unbelievers or non-believers, that phrase just hits us too lightly. For Saul, that changed everything about his life. That is not an understatement. Everything hinges on that truth. My personal prayer going into this message was that this truth, Jesus is the Christ, would be a benchmark in my personal studying and in your personal studying through the Bible that you can look back maybe to this Sunday or to this phrase in your Bibles and say, what it did for Saul, it did for me. But you might be saying, but I'm saved. I have found, and I can speak from personal experience, that often saved people need saving. (laughs) I know it doesn't sound theologically right or accurate in English, but nevertheless, experientially, I can say that saved people need saving. Jesus is the Christ, and if the Lord Jesus is the Christ, that means Jesus has saved you and me, and that Jesus is our Lord. How is your faith in that Lord? With the faithfulness of Saul's first few years of ministry here, we see Luke throw in a benchmark. Luke gives these, a bookmark I should say, Luke gives these updates. He gives these summaries throughout the book of Acts, and they're like bookmarks. And with this bookmark, he brings us to another, again, that same great irony, the full circle from Stephen to Saul, because the last similar bookmark, the last summary of the church was immediately preceding the verse, uh, near the, the beginning of the narrative on Stephen. We see in verse 31 here of 9, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Because its chief persecutor had converted. <laughs> the one who had held the coats at Stephen's death is the one who held the reins, as it were, bringing the gospel to the very people Stephen was trying to bring the gospel to in the first place. And then still further away. And what God is showing us is what He is faithful to do. 
and it shows us in turn what faithful people can do. And as we saw Saul, faithful in the beginning, faithful with training and experience, faithful when suspect and faithful under risk, and ultimately faithful in the end, I'm pressed to ask you and ask me, what season are you in and what does faithfulness look like? Here's where I'm at a lot, if I'm honest. Complacency. It takes a lot to get me on fire. I have to strive to know what to do, how to be God's tool. I'm convicted from passages like Revelation's letters to the churches. I'm lukewarm. Did I forget my first love? By God's grace, I want to have a faith like Saul, always doing something, waiting on the Lord to do what the Lord wants, boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus to anyone who will hear it. Friends, there are people that you and I know who are not only going to hell, but they are living in hell right now. And you and I have the knowledge of the one who not only saves them from the hell to come, but can redeem the hell that they're in right now. You know, Saul says in Acts 17 that everyone is where they're at, their boundaries and dwelling places, so they might feel themselves towards God and repent. You know what that means? You and I don't have an excuse. That means when we hear messages like this and the first thing you want to say, I'm old, I retired, I live in Ludland, I'm in a remote hill in Idaho, God is saying, I know, I planned it that way. <laughs> so how can you and I be faithful in this season? By God's grace, this can be a faithful season. We don't read in the Bible about a Saul faithful when retired on a remote hill in Idaho season. But you and I have an opportunity on a remote hill in Idaho in our seasons in life to be faithful. And I pray to God that it looks like Saul in our own little special way, right? Amen. Let's pray. Father, among the many things that I personally hate is whenever you convict me. I feel guilty about it and then I do nothing about it. Father, that's not the reason your spirit convicts people. It happens. and I believe it breaks your heart when it does. But whenever we are your sons and daughters, just like I expect a change of behavior when I try to correct my own kids, Father, you expect a change of behavior for all those who are feeling convicted right now. And that expectation is not going to be held over us in fear and judgment and fiery anger. It's held over us like a loving father who wants his kids to be more holy, to live better lives, better in the best ways that matter. Father, the truth remains is that you have placed us here and at this time for a season, for a purpose. And I'm just willing to hedge a bet to say it's about growing your kingdom that there are brothers and sisters and neighbors, and there are even means that we can affect the lives of people not only in our area but across the world. Father, you change the world without the Internet, and you change the world without going anywhere farther than the Middle East. But you have placed us in a special season, a special time, to where we can give one dollar, and that dollar can be used on the missions field across the world. Father, whether you've placed us here to make money and to fund missions, whether you've placed us here to reach out to neighbors with love, whether you've placed us here for all of the above, 
Help us to be faithful. Help us to live in this season of life with the faithfulness of somebody like Saul. Paul once said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Help us to live that out. We love you. We thank you. We thank you for the conviction that you're bringing today because we know ultimately it's meant to conform us to be more like your son Jesus. And we pray that we would be faithful to heed that conviction and to do something about it. But we need your spirit's power to do it. So we ask for him to do that right now. Help us to be obedient, we pray, in all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.